A very good evening and a very, very warm welcome to Dick Lovett. As I'm sure you will all agree, this is a truly incredible showroom. Um, I think if men did go to spas, they'd probably look a bit like this. It is truly amazing. Um, by, by the time Dick Lovett started in 1959, a certain Italian man manufacturer had won four Formula One Drivers' World Championships, they'd won five World Sports Car Championships, and they'd launched the beautiful 250 GT road car. There's no way we're going to cover all of Ferrari's history tonight, but hopefully we'll give you a real insight into some of the sports car racing from the 1960s. So please can you put your hands together and welcome David Piper and Richard Atwood. Richard, I'll, I'll start with you. The, you've won so many races in your time, you've raced sports cars all over the world, but it all really started because your father was a car dealer. Well, yes, he was my, um, my sponsor, effectively, because uh, we, we had garages. And uh, when I started, uh, we just uh, took the first two cars out of the showroom, basically. One was a little standard 10. And then I did a full year with, um, in 1960 with a TR3A. And um, it, was a mod I, I, it was a totally unmodified car. And I, in scratch races, I was averaged about fourth place. I couldn't win races because it wasn't fast enough. And the other cars have got fiberglass panels and Weber carburetors and all this sort of thing. So at the end of that year, I wanted to modify the car to beat everybody who had been beating me in, that, in 1960. And my father said to me, he said, well, you don't want to bother with that. He said, we'll get one of these Formula Juniors. Well, I didn't even know what he was talking about. So he was very much, you know, the push behind me. And um, as he'd raced in Brooklyn's in, in the 30s, he had to um, make a, a, a business for himself. So he didn't actually race for very long. And I think he rather it, it continued that through, through my racing, you know, 30 years later. David, you spent many, many years before you got into Ferraris racing other cars, but am I right in thinking that your sort of first time you sort of fell in love with Ferrari was when you saw a, a fellow British driver whizzing past you in the Targa Florio? Yes. Uh, I was working on a farm. I was a tractor driver, and uh, I used to... Uh, be very interested in motorbikes and really and then we used to make Austin 7 specials out of old chummies and things like that and I got to know Colin Chapman and uh, we used to go to the 750 Motor Club meetings in the evenings and uh, because I used to go to Hatfield Tech in the evenings to learn to weld and uh, use a lathe and uh, DHS was there and uh, you know Colin was selling aluminium for British aluminium in those days and uh, Danny Margulis, who was a, after the war, was a bit of a f forerunner, actually going abroad racing with his cars. He had some of the lo early Lotuses, and he bought a, a C-type Jaguar from Duncan Hamilton uh, in 1954. And uh, Graham Hill used to be his mechanic and used to look after the cars, and uh, they went racing together. And then Graham went to work for Lotus in the gearbox shop, and. Uh, Danny said, would I like to look after his C-type, which I did in the evenings, and uh, he said, would I like to come and do the Targa Florio with him, because I'd done quite a few races in England at Snetterton, because there were about four or five C-types kicking around in those days. Uh, Archie Scott Brown used to drive one, and uh, 
there were some very promising young drivers, Max Trimble uh, and uh, Bill Smith. He was killed in the uh, TT, actually, in Ireland. But uh, I used to drive Danny's car. Danny said, would I like to come down to the Targa Florio with him? Well, um, I said, yes, I'd love to. And I mentioned it to my parents. And they said, well, if you go down there, don't bother coming home again, you know. So uh, <laughs> uh, I went down there. <laughs> I spent months. I was bagging off corn and the grain dryer. And, uh, I had to make up my mind and I made the decision to leave and I never went home again. So, uh, but I, I enjoyed going down to the Targa Florio. We drove the car down to Chivitavecchia, caught the cattle boat down to Palermo and uh, I was practicing uh, and uh, I saw some lights flashing behind me and uh, suddenly this red Testarossa came by me and it was being driven by Peter Collins with Louis Clementaski in the car as a passenger. And he gave me a cheery wave and a blast on his Fiam horns and went blasting off. Well, the C-type was no slouch. I could keep up with him on the straights, but uh, you know he was a far more experienced driver than I was. But to hear those four megaphones blaring at me, it sort of, I thought, my God, I must get one of these one day, as you know, but I mean, we were running Lotuses and things like that, and uh, it was the only way to get into motor racing. I mean, uh, you know, I had a Mark VI Lotus to start with, and then we used to buy the Lotus 11s for 1,250 pounds and uh, put them together ourselves to take, to save the uh, purchase tax. But I don't want to go into my early racing history, but uh, to bring the clock forward another eight years, that was 1954, and uh, then 1961, I actually got round to meeting Colonel Hoare of Marinello Concessionaires and asking him what the chances were as Ferrari dealer in England of uh, sort of buying a, 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 a racing Ferrari. And uh, I was thinking in terms of a 250 short wheelbase at that time, but then when I saw the first GTO, I thought, well, that's got to be the car to have. And um, he was very helpful, and um, he helped me. He made it easier for me to buy the car. And uh, the combined funds that I had, and my retainer from BP at that time, and uh, Dunlops, and uh, uh, the money I'd made buying and selling Lancias and bringing them back from Italy and selling them through Danny Margulis and, you know, so I could go back and get some more, you know. I used to go all around the Lancia dealerships. Mike Hawthorne introduced me to Franco de la Lancia in Modena, and uh, I started buying cars there. And then I went pounding the pavements in most of the main cities in northern Italy, buying Lancias. I used to go to breakers' yards and... But when, you t when you finally got your first GTO, I mean, just tell us the run of races that you had. I think it will amaze everyone just how many you managed to pack in. I mean, you were telling me literally five minutes ago that you did a stock car race with your GTO and bolted on stock car tires. I mean, you're amazing. But this, the first GTO that you got, um, just tell us which races you went for. Yeah, well, my cars had to work, you know. And uh, I went down with Danny to pick up the car from the factory. I'd bought the car through Marinella Concessionaires and uh, we drove it back and we realized what a wonderful car it was and what a pleasure it was to drive and how fast and reliable it was and how, how it behaved generally. And uh, we stopped at one or two restaurants on the way back and we were discussing what we should do with it. And Danny suggested 
that I do the Tour de France with the car, with him. And uh, we do a recce in his Cooper Mini on the hill climbs. And uh, we do the Tour de France. So uh, the first race I did was uh, Crystal Palace. And I shunted it into the railway sleepers, which wasn't a very good start, but it wasn't too bad. And uh, I had to take the fuel tank back, which was all riveted to Fontanese and Modena. And he built them. He had an old tree stump in the middle of his workshop. And he built all these beautiful aluminum fuel tanks and riveted them together with plastic between the joints. And he repaired the tank, put it back together. Then I had another shunt at Brands Hatch, but it wasn't too bad. And then we did start the Tour de France. I was getting used to the car by then. And um, <laughs> thank goodness for that. <laughs> we started from Lille that year, and um, Ronnie Hall, the Colonel, was stationed there during the war. So uh, it was just a coincidence. And. Um, uh, we did the Tour de France, and I met some wonderful drivers. I mean, uh, Lucien Bianchi and uh, Aurelie Schlesser, you know, all, uh, you know, uh, all, all the classic, you know, rally drivers who knew what they were doing. And we learnt a lot on the Tour de France, you know. You didn't drive on the roads like you would on a racing circuit. You'd stay in the middle of the road so that you've got a little bit of space left. And uh, they took us over some very difficult stages. There were 5,000 kilometres on the road, seven hill climbs, some of them were 25 miles long, kilometres long, and all five very fast circuits, you know, uh, Spa, Le Mans, Rouen, Po, Albi, you know, uh, and uh, it was great. Uh, we were real beginners at the game and uh, actually on one of the controls we came into the control on the, from the wrong direction and everyone was laughing at us <laughs> but uh, we finished fourth overall which wasn't too bad and my car was green this color and um, so people would remember the car and when I applied for entries in races in France they'd know who they were getting well that was the start but uh, the next session was um, I got a telephone call from Ken Gregory, Sterling's manager, and he was running BRP at the time, and they'd bought a GTO, and it was green, but it wasn't the same colour green as mine, it was a lighter green. And um, they were going to South Africa to do the nine-hour race in Johannesburg at Kailami, and Ken said, we've sold the car to an actor in Austria, quite a famous actor, and we haven't got the car anymore, Innes was going to drive it, you can have our entry for 10% of the starting money. Well, I knew the organisers in South Africa, and uh, there wasn't any starting money. <laughs> and uh, so I thought, well, we better have a go at this. So uh, we shipped the car out on the Union Castle boat. I went out with my mechanic, Fax, who uh, was a great character. I'd met him because I used to keep the GTO in a Muse garage in London where Danny Margulis was working and I had a lock up there and uh, it was in Shaftesbury Muse, West Eight, and in those days all the Australians and New Zealanders were there, you know. And um, it was an interesting Muse because uh, there was a chap called Polish George and Fax was working for him and they were making models of aeroplanes for the f airline companies, you know, and uh, he came over and had a look at my car and he said, oh, you know, rather nice. Uh, and in the end, he said he'd like to come and work for me. Well, he was a very well-educated, very intelligent chap. He went to Gordonston, and uh, he ended up being my mechanic for about seven years. He was absolutely brilliant, but he was 
a wild chap and difficult to control. But we went out on the Union Castle boat, and I'll never forget coming into Cape Town in the morning at about five o'clock and seeing Table Mountain there. And the car was lifted up with a derrick and put down on the deck in those days, on the, on the docks. In those days, that area was purely a working docks. There was only one little restaurant there called the Harbour Cafe and all the seals used to come up and sun themselves. Anyway, Cyril Wilcox of BP was waiting for me and uh, he gave me 32 gallons of petrol and we went out to the local cricket club and had lunch and uh, set off for Joburg. And we drove a thousand miles up to Joburg. We arrived there at seven o'clock at night and I was driving with Bruce Johnson who was a friend of Raymond May's and he'd been driving occasionally for BRM, rather like Richard did only he and, and um, he was a good driver and uh, we embarked on the race it was nine hours and uh, the South Africans were very glad to see us uh, and uh, Tony Maggs and Bobby Altoff and all the local heroes in South Africa John Love and uh, Peter de Klerk all the people that, uh, were very friendly and it was a great time. I love sportsmen, people who played cricket, people came, who played rugger and people came motor racing and socially it was a great place to be. And uh, anyway, I'd cut a long story short, we won the race and uh, it worked out very well. <laughs> um, so then we toddled off down to Cape Town, another thousand miles down there and, and uh, we did the three hour race in Cape Town and then I don't think we did very well there. I think we finished about seventh. And uh, then I stuck the boat, on a, the, the car on a boat at Cape Town Harbour round to Luanda in Angola. It was the Principe Perfetto. It was a cork boat that carried all the cork from the cork trees for making the corks for wine bottles, you know. And we arrived in uh, Luanda in Angola. Um, and. Uh, the race was round the streets, it was like Monte Carlo. And we were staying in the Continental Hotel, in fact I've still got the key to my room. <laughs> and uh, it was, Souvenir. all the people started arriving from Europe. Uh, there was the Marquis de Montaigu with Annie Swabo who drove a GTO Ferrari. There was Jack Swatters with Willie Meres, Lucien Bianchi, uh, and all those drivers. There was Herbert Muller from Switzerland. and. It was a wonderful group of people, and uh, it was a very wealthy country. All the pavements were beautiful mosaic, and uh, there was a club Naval out on a peninsula, and it was a nightclub in the base of the hotel, and lots of action there, you know. And the automobile club were very hospitable, and uh, we had some wonderful racing there. I mean, central to, to all of this was, was the man himself, Enzo Ferrari, and to, you know, for someone my age, he's sort of this, this mythical figure. Richard, you, you met him once, did you not? I met him because um, I was driving at the time for, um, well, talking 66, 67, when I was driving for Marinello Concessionaires, the, you know, Ronnie Hall, the importers of, of Ferrari um, for the UK. And um, I can't remember why, but he had got a, a car with a... Um, was consuming a lot of oil and for the factory wanted to um, have the car down there to um, sort it out and I think it was just the valve seals, little, little um, o-rings on the valve seals that were not working properly so we, um, I went down with Ronnie to uh, take it, deliver it down there and then we flew back and uh, 
while we were there, yes, I, I did meet Enzo Ferrari, but it was in his very sort of dark and dingy office. You could hardly really see across the table at him, but uh, I think he was, um, he was always interested in any drivers who he might happen to see, uh, meet, because he was always looking for the next sort of really, you know, strong driver who would actually take Ferrari beyond what a... He was looking for the best driver, the fastest driver, I suppose, whether they survived or not. He wasn't probably too that interested, <laughs> um, but uh, he, he was on, on the lookout, so that's probably why I met him. Um, but even then, was he as revered as you know, as the man he's, he, he became to all of us? <coughs> well, I, I think he was really um, just a, a very secreted away sort of man, wasn't he, really? And um, it was a bit of a mystery. And uh, there were probably many people who, who probably wondered if he actually ever existed, you know. <laughs> but um, I, he spoke very little English as far as I know. So really, I think Ro Ronnie was, was making the conversation. And uh, I just happened to be there. So it wasn't, uh, I didn't feel, <clears throat> you know, a great aura of feeling having met him or anything like that. Uh, but then maybe I was, I was a bit, quite, I was in my mid-twenties, so I probably was a little bit under, underwhelmed by the aura. Yeah. And David, you, I mean, you got to know him quite well, he, to the extent that he was always giving your um, lovely wife scarves and chatting her up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you're, you're jumping again, you've gone miles ahead. We're back in 61 still. I hadn't arrived back in England from South Africa yet, okay. and uh, just to get, a, get it out of the way quickly, uh, <laughs> I just can bore you all to death. <laughs> I'll, uh, I got back to England, shipped the car on the QE2 to New York, drove it down through the Carolinas, did Daytona and Sebring, sold the car to Ed Cantrell, uh, and he decided that he wanted to do some races in England, so I'll go into that later. But uh, anyway, that was that. So as far as Ferrari's concerned, uh, I did meet him, a friend of mine, Alan Phillips, and Daphne Barron, who was uh, a friend of mine, uh, was a journalist for Autosport, and he used to do the Autosport lap charts for Formula One, and uh, we went and interviewed Enzo Ferrari in 1956, and that's the first time I met him. But um, uh, I got the usual runaround, you know, but um, I did... Send, as I told you, send my mechanic down to work at the uh, factory in Modena in Via Veneto Trieste, uh, Trieste, number 20, Via Veneto Trieste, and uh, that's where the Assistenza was, where all the wrecked cars were taken when they were damaged in the road and blown up in circuits and things like that, and where the customers took their cars to be maintained. And uh, I went in there, and uh, one day, there was a lady on her hands and knees scrubbing the floors, the marble floors, and it was Mrs. Ferrari. <laughs> and uh, Enzo Ferrari, every morning, he had a routine. He used to uh, go to Dino's grave uh, in the northern part of Modena, then he'd come back to the hairdresser and uh, have a shave with a cutthroat razor, you know, and then he'd go to the factory, and Peppino, his driver, and who used to be his racing mechanic, uh, used to hang around at the Assistenza with the old man's car. At that stage, I think in 62, he had a 250 GTE with a four-liter engine. And uh, he did invite me up to the Gatto Verdi one day and took me for a ride. It was a bit scary. Up the hill, and we had a meal in the Gatto Verdi. It was north of Marinello, and you could go skiing there in the winter. Uh, I used to stay there 
in Modena because I had a workshop there and um, uh, we used to go up there in the winter and uh, I, my workshop was about 100 yards from the test track in Modena and I used to just wheel my car across the road and test any time I liked. But there were no marshals or anything there but you could just use it. It was a public facility which is quite good. Um, um, apart from that, um, we, Ed Cantrell, who bought my GTO, said he'd love to do the Nürburgring 1,000 kilometers, so we came back and did that with him. Then he said he'd like to do Monza, the 1,000 k, so we did that, by which time I'd, uh, I'd ordered another new GTO. And then when he was in Monza, we did quite well in those races, we finished quite well up. Um, the copper into Europa, those races. Um, he said, do you know a company called Agip? I said, yes. He said, would you take me to them? So I took him into Milan to Agip and he bought their Lear, one of the Learjets to take back to America. He was an incredible character. He was about six foot six and very broad. He used to wear crocodile shoes and he had this airfield at Zephyr Hills. Mm. And after the race at uh, Daytona, he said, you know, I'd like to buy your car. I'd like to do Sebring with you. It was a month later, Daytona was in February, Sebring was in March. He said, come and stay with me at my house. I'll teach you to fly. You can prepare the car and we'll do Sebring. And that's how it all happened. And uh, so that was that. I mean, that's a short series on the first GTO. But um, um, that's enough for me. Yeah, well. Eu não posso, eu não posso, eu não posso.